Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey out there, rock and roll fans. Welcome to the 45th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. I'm Mac B. the Wolf, and I will be joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, Action Jackson. We've got another guest here today, maybe someone you never heard of, but I guarantee you, if you're a Rolling Stones fan, you're going to want to listen to this interview. His name is Kurt Angelitis. He has been going to Rolling Stones shows for over 50 years and has been a fan for, I think, 58 years. And somewhere in the mid-70s, he decided to start bringing his camera along and capturing as many moments in the shows as he could. Now, of course, bands and venues frown on this sort of behavior. So a lot of this interview and a lot of his stories about how does he get his camera and all his film in and out of these venues? How does he capture all these shots without getting caught or mauled by security people? It's something he's been doing for almost half a century. And as a native New Yorker, he's kind of a tough guy. He's lived all over the world in Alaska and hippie communes, now lives out on the West Coast and has put together an extraordinary book of his Stones photos called Going for Broke, Volume 1 by Kurt Angelettis. And it's a great book. It's got all the different iterations of the Stones, and not just the main guys, but also the side people, like the Lisa Fishers, the Bobby Keys, the people who are an important part of the Stones' history, but maybe aren't just Mick and Keith. And I tell you, he's been there, folks. He's been on every tour. He went to the hearing in Toronto for Keith's drug bust. He went to the, the show for the blind that they did in Toronto. He was at both Woodstock and Altamont. Just an extraordinary life. And he doesn't just cover the Stones. He's covered hundreds of bands, and you can see that on his website, which you can find at chief-moons-gallery.com. He's got everything organized. You can see a lot of his Stones picks. You can see all the different tours and concerts he's been on for the Stones. And then he's got a list of all the many artists that he's captured over the years, which is really incredible. So I encourage you to go out and check out his book, and you're going to hear all about it here during the interview. Now, of course, we need you to follow us on Twitter. And if you want to DM us or send us a message, please do so. I'm at ugly underscore werewolf, and Jackson is at actionjack72. You can check out all past episodes and subscribe at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.com. Libsyn.com. And we want you to come check us out. Make sure that you do download us every week and subscribe so that you don't miss out. It just helps us find more listeners like yourselves. And if I can ask you to give us a positive review wherever you can, that would be big for us too. It just helps us get more listeners, helps us kind of move up the food chain to get more and better interviews down the road. So if you're enjoying the show, hey, please help us out and give us a review. Now with that, I think you're going to like this interview. He hasn't done too many interviews. He's quite a character. A Bronx boy is quite a character here, Kurt Angelitas. He's got a lot of stories to tell. We kind of only scratched the surface of it, but we're doing it to review for his book, Go For Broke, Volume 1, all about candid pictures at Rolling Stones concerts over the years. So sit back and relax as we learn all about his adventures right here in The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out. 
because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, well, Kurt, how you doing? You ready to go, bud? Yeah, I'm good. You know, we're just going to be Stones fans asking you geeky questions about the band, but also just about your travels, man. It just seems like you've led an incredible life, you know, behind the camera there, traveling all over the world, not just for the Stones, but all sorts of great stuff. So I was hoping we could kind of start off with maybe some of your background growing up in the city and then moving on, talking about Alaska, all the different places you've been. And I'll, I'll kind of do it in context around your book, if that's all right. Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds good. Cool. Uh, essentially, there are three, there's three strands, threads, weaves, whatever you want to call them, that run through the entire situation. That would be the fact that I've enjoyed music for my entire life since I was small. One of the first live things I saw was like Louis Armstrong and John Hammond at a block party when I was about eight. Wow. My sister being five years younger, older than me, uh, she dug people like Bob Dylan. And, well, one of the first ones I saw down in the village was Phil Oaks. And uh, one of the nights I went to see him, Dylan was there, and he played. So I got to see a lot of things. I got to see Hendrix at the Cafe Wa in New York. Oh, man. Uh, I got to see uh, the Stones early on in 66. And then it just became something well held. They came back in 69. Mm -hmm. And that would have been the first time that I went like to more than one show in more than one location. New York and Altamont. Okay. Oh, you went to Altamont? Yeah. And I'd say it was a freaky contrast to have been at Woodstock and four months later to be at Altamont. You were I both. Real, yeah, I was real, real early at Woodstock. I went up with the East Village other bus a few days earlier, helped out with this and that and the other thing, the food people and digging trenches and this and that. And stayed for a few days after, cleaned the place up. So, but how many how many people could possibly say that? You've got to be in a real small club to be at both of those shows. I think so, but I didn't encounter very many uh, East Coast folks uh, at all. But then again, I didn't encounter that many people. I barely got there in time for their set. I didn't hear anybody else beforehand. Okay. I think I got there maybe even right after Wyman got there on the helicopter. I was nowhere near where all the aggravation was. I was back well behind the sound tower. Okay. I heard what was being played, but to see what was going on, shit, it was dark. Right. Nighttime. The, the vibes are completely different between the two places. Okay, there was uh, a gloom and doom sort of bit hanging over all the month from the very beginning. I mean, I'd been out to California a couple of years before that and saw that California was rather different than New York. Sure. And that there were like more different, well, more different kinds of people out in California, if mm -hmm. you will. I mean, bikers were not really tolerated in New York. Right. They had their, they had their little clubhouse, clubhouse down on 3rd Street, but that was about as far as their influence went except in subterranean fashion. Out in California, they were living large. You know what I mean? They were running all over the place, running roughshod over cops and everything else like that. They started getting busted up from New York outward, if you will. But I'm just trying to say there's two different moods. I mean, there were a few people riding bikes at Woodstock, but they were a wholly different nature. Right. Yeah, no, in, in New York, the neighborhood takes care of itself. And, of course, the, the mafia yeah. certainly took care of yeah. a lot of the after-hours places and kept it, you know, pretty civil all the time, where it's kind of just like no one's in charge out in California, you know? Yeah, that's true. I don't know, then, 72 was the next time I saw him, and that was in California because that's where I happened to be, and, well, I heard about tickets, and as soon as I heard about the tickets being on sale, uh, like, the next day, I went to the place. It was like a Sears outlet where they had a ticket trunk. Nice. And, gee whiz, I 
learned recently that I was extremely lucky to even get tickets. I mean, if you look, there's a newspaper article from back then that talks about the difficulty of getting tickets through Ticketron, how their computers screwed up, oh, yeah. how by 3 o'clock in the afternoon they cut off the sales and everything. And despite the tickets being inexpensive, there are always people crowing about how much tickets were. I mean, can you crow about a $5 ticket to see the Rolling Stones? <laughs> <No. laughs> I mean, where, really, where were you living in 72? I, 72 out in uh, San Francisco at Winterland. Okay. And it was in 75. Like I said, it was there was music that was underlying as one of the planks of involvement. The other one was travel. From the time I was small, I liked explorers. Genghis Khan. You know, guys like that that saw the fuck world. Alexander. And they got out there and they saw everywhere. I'm feeling like, oh my God, right now I'm running light on how many places I've been. I've only been to 13 countries and there's a couple hundred of them out there. I don't think I'll make it. Maybe I get in a few more, but for somebody from the Bronx, that's not too bad to have seen the Stones in China or <laughs> elsewhere. Exactly. That was, that was the one thing that I that I got from the book was just for so many people that wish they could do this, for somebody like yourself to actually go ahead and commit themselves to going to all these shows and recording all of these images... It's it was mind blowing to me, and then throwing in the stories too of the stuff that was going on while you were going to see the show. It's a really interesting picture book, but not really because you throw the stories in. So I thought it was it was interesting on both avenues. Well, the original concept was for a much larger book, physically and content. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're looking at something that's three hundred and fourteen pages. The original conception would have run to over 200 pages of text, detailing a lot more shows and a lot more, let's just say in-between tour stuff. Mm -hmm. But because of the format that I was able to get this thing produced in, I had to limit myself to the 8.5 by 11. And the 8.5 by 11 gave me a choice. Okay, am I looking at something that's horizontal or am I looking at something that's vertical? And I decided to do something that's vertical because most people are accustomed to looking vertically at a book. Sure. I know there's something that have shorter pages and, I mean, shorter uh, binding sides. And so as a result of the required formatting, I limited everything basically to everything that was horizontal. But the thing is, is that I probably had twice as many horizontal shots as verticals. So wow. that, in a way, would address your volume two issue. Well, yeah, of course, that's the question. I mean, the, the, the book's called Go For Broke, Volume 1. So obviously that leads, we wouldn't call it Volume 1 if maybe there weren't going to be follow-ups. <laughs> well, I did name it that at that point in time. It was kind of like, that was the third name. The first name was a lot longer uh, in terms of, you know, like the, the secondary heading, Volume 1. That was going to be something like Go For Broke Vertically. Ah. And the other one was going to be horizontally, but that got mixed at some point in time. Way early on, it was going to be go for broke. If it's yellow, floret, never mind the flashing red lights. <laughs> well, so was that the third part? Because the first, you know, the first part is you love music. Second part, travel. You want to see the world. And then the third part is photography. Well, the third part is photography. Now, I didn't pick up a camera officially or even unofficially until about 1973. I happened to live in Virginia Beach at the time, like. Took my kid out in a stroller at sunset one day. I saw this amazing sunset. So I ran back in the place where I'm staying and got a little brownie camera to use. Okay. I went out and I took 12 exposures in a circle. Okay, the results, when they came back from the drugstore, basically sucked. <laughs> they showed me four prints. And I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? I know there was more on there than that. So I would ask people, well, why did this happen? I started with the drugstore guy. He didn't know. Then I started talking to other people. They didn't know. Well, I limited the number of kinds of people I was asking of. I talked to people with cameras. Well, at some point in time, I moved up from Virginia Beach to New York. And I'm on the subway, and I see you've got a guy with a camera. And I ask him. And he says, hey, come on with me. We'll go downtown. We'll go talk to this guy, and maybe he can tell you. So I went to this little gallery called the Fourth Street Gallery in New York. All right who is now having their 50th year anniversary uh, celebration. I've got a big show on there and everything. Anyway, fellow named Alex, Alex Harsley, uh, quite influential in photography in the world, that, that part of the world on the Lower East Side. And he took me into his darkroom and projected the images that were on the film onto a white surface. And he says, you got something here. He said, what you should do is pick up a 35 millimeter and learn. So I took his advice. I went out and I got a... a inexpensive 35 must have been about 50 bucks out of a pawn shop all right a little lens a normal lens a 50 millimeter lens and i started taking pictures of practically everything what this led to was an understanding of using a camera the physicality of using a camera because if you're going to get 
charge quickly, you've got to know the unit. You've got to know the camera. You've got to know how it's going to work. Beyond that, I had to learn film processing. I couldn't afford to send film out, so I had to learn myself. Sure. So I got a little tank, a little plastic developing tank, and learned about chemistry and temperatures and how this is done. And well, a couple of years later, I was able to do color film, slide film, black and white film in my own little lab. And I've had it in my own little lab for decades. That's where all my prints have been produced. I've sold thousands of them. Not for a whole lot. I mean, back when I started, I was selling 11 by for $5. People would tell me, you're crazy. You should be selling these things for 300 I said, I tell you. How many of these people that want to buy cheap tickets want to buy a $300 print? I said, it's five bucks. I can sell a hundred of them in 20 minutes and have enough bread to get to the next show. I said, I'm not going to screw myself by trying to sell them to some Nazi Tatsy cheese eating folks, you know, for $300 a piece. <laughs> so the thing is, as time went by, I was selling not just to collectors that I would encounter, not just to fans outside the gigs or alongside of them or on the way or on the train or the plane or whatever. I started being able to sell them to independent record stores. Mm-hmm. And this is where I could sell 100 lots, where I didn't have to putz around with each sale. I could just sell a whole box and be done with it. That's nice. And that's a lot handier than one by one by one. Yeah, right. You can change for a 10? No. Uh, you want to buy two? Yeah, you can give them to me for eight. Oh, my God. Just take the damn thing. I, I think the one situation, the worst night out I ever had selling prints after a show, St. Paul in 78. It was raining. One sale for three bucks. <laughs> Rough. But that was after, you know, a, a nice period of time. In Chicago, a couple of days worth, with two boxes went at retail, $5 a piece. So I was sitting good for money to get to and through the next series of shows. Okay, if I sold the whole box of prints, that meant that I could take my choice. I could fly, I could take a bus, I could take a train, I could rent a car, I could do whatever the hell to get to the next one. I could buy film, I could buy a ticket for whatever people were wanting for a ticket. Because I do some getting ticket. I, I think the only ticket I got technically in advance was the one in 72. Other than that, it was outside the venue on the day of. That's what I love. So I, got to know, I got to know scalpers. I got to know all kinds of people who, every tour around, they would be wondering if I was out there, and I'd be wondering if they were out there, if they had survived the last period of time. Now, as time went by on Rolling Stones tours, it got more and more impossible Mm. to commit these kinds of activity. I mean, in L.A., there was an old lady, the tax lady. She would come around looking for anybody trying to sell anything. And she would mail everybody. Everybody. I I used to watch her. I used to watch her so she wouldn't be watching me. But that was just L.A. Other circumstances help. 78 in Cleveland. Uh, I think the cops were on strike. A license to sell anything was only a buck. And the cops that were watching the place... Didn't care if you had a camera, okay? One salient point about this whole thing, whenever it started, whenever it ends, if you note, on the backs of the tickets, quite often on huge banners above the place, there's an advisement as to what you can and cannot bring into a Rolling Stones show. What do I bring that you're not allowed to bring? Recording equipment. Any kind of camera equipment, any kind of recording equipment. And so the thing is, that's the that's really the underlying thing of it, is getting past that whole blockage. And now I have to think about it each time around because, you know, a routine can get stale. Yeah. Well, no, that's what I love, I like man, to, because you're you're on your own out there. It's not like you've always got tickets or you're always a credentialed photographer. It's a game. How am I going to get to the town? Where am I going to stay? How many pictures do I need to sell to get there? Do I meet yeah, up with the right I, people? You know, that kind of stuff. And then, of course, how do I smuggle this in? How do I beat the game and get it in there to get these pictures? <laughs> say that I don't care what they throw up. It's beatable. <laughs> yeah, I like the story about how you were you had come from Alaska and the guy's going through your bag and you're like, Oh yeah, I've just got off the plane from Alaska. Oh, you long way to head. here you go. Go. So you know, you're thinking ahead like, you know, how do I get how do I get ingratiated with this guy to kind of just get pushed into the venue? Well, I I think it blew him away that I had come from Alaska. It should have. And, and yeah. basically it relieved him of his duty to keep digging in <laughs> Yeah, well, this guy's coming this far. Surely he's not up to no good. He's obviously a fan. <laughs> it was like 78 in St. Louis. The people, the cops that were guarding the place thought I was with the band, so it was no big deal. <laughs> now, I, I mean, recently, 2019, I shot two shows where you could bring a camera, but you couldn't bring a real one. Right, you could bring a phone, you know, but you, you can't, can't bring a professional camera. Right. Now, what's a frisky at the door going to think is a 
professional camera. Anything that's a 35 has got a lens on it. Right. I mean, so you, you can't go at it that way. Right now, I use a handy, handy, dandy little thing that is easy to stuff somewhere. Looks yeah. like a phone. And it's about the same, it's about the, yeah, about the same size as a phone, so I could see somebody, even if you took it out and they were, if it was dark. Oh, no, they when they patch it down for stuff, you got to do a little bit better than Thomas. All <laughs> <laughs> <No>, right. <laughs> I remember one gig, I guess it was a Winehouse gig up in Seattle. The lens was in a plastic drink container about this high. Hey, I even had ice and liquid in the thing. The lens was in a, is, was in uh, Ziploc bags, three of them. Wow. One bag within another within another. It wasn't going to get wet. Nice. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, as like you said, as time goes on, you've got to be more and more inventive on how you get into the venue. And then once you get there, how you take the pictures. Uh, oh, there yeah. Was a, there was a story oh, yeah. about how at one point you were holding it, I guess, over your head because you were, there was tall people in front of you. And the pictures oh, yeah. looked pretty good from that set. That could be a real serious impediment. <laughs> I mean, when you think about, when you think about a 35 millimeter camera, normally you're taking stills. It's not a movie. It's not a video. It's stills. Okay. Now still photography requires certain settings, certain light, if you will. Mm-hmm. Out there, daylight, no problem, okay? You can shoot with smaller apertures. You can shoot with faster shutter speeds. At night, with even super troopers, you don't have very much exposure capacity there. So you go and you shoot. Gee whiz, what did you get? To shoot it uh, with 100 ASA film? Get out of here. You got nothing. 400 ASA film, you might have the beginnings of something. Well, I learned that the film stock really didn't cut it for the shooting environment. So I learned about push processing. I've got some shots from, say, the ones from Memphis in 1975, Mm -hmm. color shots. They were taken on Code of Color 2, which is an ASA 80 film. Very suitable for daylight, very suitable for white folks in the daylight out in the park and what have you. Not at all suitable for an environment where if you put a meter on it, you're looking at 800 ASA. So I had to push the film, which was something that was unheard of. Pushing color film, what, are you crazy? <laughs> and they were barely there, they, but they were. It's interesting, too, because you're saying stock, like, uh, still photography. Those guys don't ever stand still on the stage. They're always oh, no. moving. No, I mean, like, and the thing, too, is that if, if you're in an SRO situation, which is kind of where you are if you want to be if you're on the floor, yeah. Like around that park, okay, it's standing room only, or it's a crowd all mushed together. They move, too. Then you've got the lights that are constantly changing, so nothing is stable. Nothing is in the photographer's control. So, you know, your thing is, I like to go and shoot 20 rolls of film. Per show. 20-42s if I'm rolling them, but 20-36s if I'm buying stock film. Okay, so that's 720 frames of film. Out of that, I'm lucky if I've got 70-odd that are reasonable. Real lucky if I've got seven of them that work in terms of being able to sell them. Cool. So if I go with one roll of film, I better get something. (laughs) Sure, yeah. This time, I have. I went to Chicago, one roll of film. Unfortunately, that strip of that particular roll of film was stolen in 1981. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't do any more than what I had in terms of digitally reviving them from contact sheets. So there's a couple of them there I think noted as Chicago. One of Mick put his hands stuffed in his pants and one of Keith with a cigarette. I think he may have seen that one. Those are from Chicago. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, recently in China or Mexico City in this decade, mm-hmm. when I brought the little digital, I was able to shoot 700 odd exposures. Maybe 60 of them came away good. So I'm not going there partying. I'm not going there to listen to the music and hear the Rolling Stones and stuff. Of course, I hear it. But the thing is, their music drives me on a more subliminal level for me. I don't pay much attention to the crowd. I don't pay much attention even to the sound. I'm entirely focused on a tiny little rectangle of the viewfinder. But it must have been been something about the Stones for you to follow them and and chase after them all these years. If I put on music, it's the Rolling Stones. I've been listening to them almost constantly for just about 58 years. I listen to them in the middle of the night with headphones when folks are sleeping. I listen to them throughout the daytime. And yeah, I like the music. I like them. But if I go to a show, it's to photograph it. You're at, you're at work. Yeah, it's work. It's mm-hmm. not play. Initially, the ones in the 60s would have been played, even the one in 72. But as of 75, it was no longer just simply there as a, a fan of the band or into music or what. It was for, for the images. Yeah, I, I like what you were talking about. Like when you go into a place, you 
you immediately start to scout the, okay, this would be a good play, good vantage point. This would be a good vantage point. And you kind of work yourself in through the crowd to get your, the best angle up to the stage. Well, yeah, what would be permissible? I mean, there were times when I've had front row tickets and I had to uh, back off. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Front row, sixth row. Last 25 years, I've had a much better way of getting tickets. Sure. A much a much better way of tickets. <laughs> it ain't about Ticketmaster. It ain't about brokers. It ain't about day off. I put in a request and show up and pick them up. And I love that story just because, like, yeah, it's great to be in, like, the first or second row. It's a great experience. But it's not so good for my chosen profession or for what I like to do. Uh, and there was a great one of when the security guard came over and you basically had to switch out the film and then you had the yeah. blank one in the camera and said, here, look, I'll pull it out for you. But that wasn't the one that had the pics on it. No, because I had already changed it and back while he was rolling on me. Yeah. I was watching him coming up, but I knew what he was about as soon as I saw him make his approach. While he made his approach, I popped out the uh, roll that had something exposed and stuck, stuck another one in. And when I opened the back, I didn't have a, a, a I had a blank. Mm -hmm. So the, what I yanked out was a blank. Yeah. Nice. And I had passed the other one off to an associate. And meanwhile, Keith is laughing the whole time. He's watching it go down, and he's laughing his ass off. That's, yeah, that's what my people would tell us. What the people that were with me told me. I didn't even see that. That's great. That's great but stuff. See, in 2019, I think I got, I, because I wasn't really noticing or watching, because I might have been focused on a Charlie or Daryl or somebody else, but... I wound up getting the full measure of mixed water cup. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, yeah. And other times, you know, when they used to, like, when he did that bit in 75 with the bucket or 78. Yeah. The water bucket. Yeah, I've been, I've been caught with that, too. Oh, nice. nice. Uh, that was one time, too. Was it uh, on at least two gigs, Florida in 75, and I guess it was Memphis in 75, too, that I attached myself to the upper portion of the fence. And the thing is, is that as long as I didn't come over onto the other side of the fence, the security guards didn't get any trouble. So I just hung on the fence. And years later, I was hearing Keith saying something about a human fly with a, a wonderful <laughs> He might have been cracking about me, but I don't know. <laughs> now, another thing that's got me a bit more into the uh, whole Rolling Stones folks or folks scene around the Rolling Stones was meeting people like uh, James Kornbach, Tom Beach. Tom Beach was a collector. Okay. Had a huge record store in Maryland. And I met him in 75 outside of the Capitol Center in mm -hmm. Maryland, a little bit north of D.C. And, well, he bought prints off of me. Three years later, he happened to be sitting at a table at the Farmer House in Chicago. And I said, hey, Tom, what's up? Well, he was sitting there with these other guys. And James Kornbach was one of them. Now, James Kornbach used to babysit Keith's kids. Marlon and... Okay. He's got a couple of books, and he's, he's known in those circles. He's not much into it now these days anymore, but he put me on to some other people and then things got interesting in terms of well who to communicate with a number of years later 1989 some of these people that i became aware of through james made me aware of some other folks and that was how i got the only press pass i've ever had now let's talk about press passes all right press passes suck they suck from my perspective they suck okay you're in the building for two songs and then your ass is out unless you bought a ticket ah. and if even if you bought a ticket you can't bring your gear back in. Right, right. Well, I shot on a press pass to two songs. I shot seven fucking rolls in a period of time. I think I got maybe half a dozen images out of it. And one of the ladies, it might even have been mixed publicists, got bent out of shape with me because as we were leaving, I was still shooting over my shoulder. Right. Well, good so, for you. you know, it's like, I really don't understand. I could explain it in one way. It'd be a little bit long thing and involve another band. But let's put it this way. One time... Locally, there was a group from Japan coming. They're called Shonen Knife. All right. And they were like a Beatles uh, imitation group, a girl group that did Beatles songs. I had permission from the venue. I had permission from the label. I had permission from their publicist, permission from the band to go ahead and take pictures of them in this crappy little place, okay? All right. Along comes the road manager, mixes the whole deal. Why? That I couldn't figure. Go through all these changes over what? Because as it worked out anyway, I got a buddy on the back door and I just walk in. <laughs> No, so it's like, what the hell are they talking about? You want to do it officially, you want to do it unofficial. If I intend to shoot something, I will. Uh, one time I went to a Van Gogh exhibit. They had two guards on each damn door in the room, and I shot it anyway. <laughs> Rock and roll outlaw, Kurt. <laughs> this is Neil from Daft Leppard, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London, a rock podcast.
You know, the, the, the one thing that I really liked about the book, the way it was presented at the end of it, there is a key of all of the photographs, like what, who's in it and what year it is. But the photographs themselves don't have anything. There's no, there's no description. There's no anything. So you can really kind of just look at it and you don't get bogged down with, with any kind of explanation. You kind of just see it for what it is and what you see in the picture. And I really well, like that. I've never been one that's big on captions. I mean, you can't tell what yeah. the hell it is. What am I going to do? Fair enough. There's a lot of people out there, they'll do conceptual work or they'll do, uh, oh, I don't know, and like they'll give it a caption. I've never been able to caption anything. What do you do if you got a thousand pictures of somebody? I think yeah. you caption. Right. Yeah. But you can, you kind of just take in everything that's in the photo. And it, even if you don't know who the people are, you know, like the background players, you can kind of go and do a little research. Uh-huh. And, and kind of get a better a better understanding for who the because I mean the Stones are the the five members of the band but they also have this great kind of army of people around them session players touring yeah. players and everything and it's really cool to see them kind of in the background too kind of gives you the whole picture of the band well that's something that I wanted to do because too many other books exclude everybody they yeah. exclude the other people that are part of the band or part of the whole arrangement or they'll only focus on Nick and Keith I mean when you go through all the books you don't see that many pictures of Bill Wyman mm-hmm. you don't see that many pictures of Charlie you rarely see one of Bobby Keys now I don't know I know that I didn't have that many of them of Bill Wyman because I didn't shoot all that many of them myself <laughs> but I did shoot some and there's a reason for that Bill Wyman was off in the shadows most of the time right he wasn't well lit through this they didn't even start getting well lit until maybe 78 okay yeah I mean you got to be really close uh, and you know a lot of the photographs that you see press you see an awful lot of press photographs where it's the same angle or it's the same shot sure yeah or you'll see uh, things where people use flash like crazy and gee do not be in the audience use a flash unit please <laughs> it's not gonna work out for yeah, that's a bad idea be leaving soon okay so that's another reason why i had to learn sort of fancy processing techniques in order to get past things like reciprocity failure i mean the further away if you're twice as far away from something you got to give it four times as much exposure okay okay so if you're in good at 400 asa and say you're six seats out you move to 20 seats out all of a sudden that 400 asa has to become 800 and you've got to kick up you've got to open up another stop in order to even get some kind of an exposure interesting you know there's a lot of things that come into play as to how the book became but for the digital age it wouldn't exist Mm -hmm. there's an extremely high expense to number one produce the photographs sure number two produce half tones and color separations and then you go for a proof and see by the time you've done that you're into fifty seventy five thousand dollars worth of money Mm -hmm. and you better have a publisher if you're doing that. <laughs> so so when did, I mean, did you start off thinking that you were going to do a book? Or at what point in time did you say, I've got enough stuff now that this could really be one volume of stuff? Well, it, it was fairly early on. Uh, initially, the first few shots from like Boston, New York, and Philly in 75, I thought, well, maybe these could be like, get a poster out of one of them, or an album cover or something. Mm-hmm. Boy, that was a naive view. <laughs> at least until I got to Memphis, and Jacksonville, where, you know, the images actually improved a great deal. Okay, so the initial idea was that I would be able to get, like, a record cover or a poster thing, a poster deal out of it, mm-hmm. and then, then maybe I would have $1,500 so I could open a studio and be a photographer. Sounds because good. without a studio in New York, you get laughed at, okay? Yeah. Actually, anywhere, if you claim to be a photographer and you don't have the <laughs> studio, they're laughing at you. Of course. No matter how good you are, all right? One of the things about 1975 and living in New York was that I was able to go to Rolling Stone Records, where I was supposed to have all of these meetings with Marshall Chess. Thirteen times I was supposed to meet the guy. Really? Never happened. Anyway, each time that he didn't show up, it just prompted me to continue going and shooting so I would have more to show. Uh. Well, by the end of the summer and the end of the tour, I get back home from Florida. A friend of mine that came by and he said, look, you got all of this stuff. Uh, what are you going to do with it? I said, maybe I ought to do a book. So that's where that came from. It was really early on that the notion of a book existed. And then as time went by and I tried to get something happening in terms of getting a book published, well, tours would go by and the other stuff wouldn't happen. So I'd just go go to go to the next one, you know. So I went in 75 and 78, and when the expensive winos went out in 79, then 81. The new barbarians. And there was a long space till 89 where things were looking all kinds of squirrely. 
And, well, when 89 came up, I was Johnny on the spot, not there the first show. Well, getting a ticket from around the building at that point in time put me in the 60th row. Now, 60th row is not a very good spot. <laughs> I had to be a little bit more thoughtful about targeting where tickets were coming from so that I could cut the distance down. Set 89 worked out well for a lot of lucky circumstances. The press pass was luck. That got me a few. Mm -hmm. And then in Washington, D.C. on that tour on the 25th of September, 89, I happened to be outside selling 16 by 20 prints. It's raining for Christ's sake again, okay? So I really couldn't sell prints. I was on my last bus ticket day and everything else like that when I come across a guy and he's wearing a bunch of tickets in his hat. And I said, gee, are uh, you interested in trading a print for one of those tickets? He says, no. Uh, are you ready to go? I said, yeah. He takes me into the Capitol Center through some back door in the basement or what we only encountered one security guard just one old black guy he didn't give a fuck about anything <laughs> so anyway the guy i met put me right in the sixth row nice i didn't awesome. have an hour band i didn't have a ticket i was in there with all the hoi polloi nice <laughs> and close no aggravation i made myself a little tank because of the rain and proceeded Hey, this is Action Jackson. The Wolf and I are coming at you on the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. I guess another interesting aspect of this would be who among the Rolling Stones actually has any of my photographs? Bill Wyman? Yes, Bill Wyman does through two different means. I submitted a whole bunch of stuff uh, digitally for that uh, Rolling with the Stones book. Mm -hmm. Another oddity there is that without even me knowing it, Astrid, his wife, bought one off of me in Boulder, Colorado in 78. Really? These <laughs> came by while I'm selling prints. They buy a couple. Nice, tall-looking, nice-looking lady buys one of Bill. Not many people would buy him a Bill. I said, okay, that works. Right. A little bit after that, somebody walks up to me and says, do you know who that was? I said, no. She said that that was Bill's wife, Astrid. Cool. Uh, Ronnie Wood got one in 75. Must have been the fourth night that they were there at the gardens in that year. Fourth of seven, I guess it was. Wow. As the limousines were leaving, I chucked the print into an open window and out shoots Ron Wood's hand for a high five. All right, Ronnie. Next time around was in 79 when uh, the photograph I took at Keith at the courthouse in 79 there in April went to him as a birthday present that year. Uh, that went through his uh, Lady Jane Rose, who also collected a whole bunch of stuff from Mick. After that, I think it was uh, Daryl Jones got one from Bernard Fowler. I met Bernard Fowler at one of the Tim Reese gigs. Okay. And I think back in, I think it was 2002 or 2005, probably five. Bernard was just outside the gate and I recognized him and rolled up on him and said, you know, I appreciate the music, shook hands. And I said, hey, do me a favor. Could you give me this, could you give uh, Daryl this one of him and Ronnie? And he said, sure. Well, recently, uh, Daryl Jones has been using one of my shots as his profile pic on Facebook for about a year. Oh, that's uh, really cool. Uh, that's crazy. Along on my page and made comments about the shots I'd taken of him at, uh, at a Bowie thing that he did a couple of years back, the Bowie celebration. I happened to catch that up in Portland. And let's see, the other one would have been off of the Charlie Watts Quintet mm -hmm. uh, gig in night in San Francisco. I had a collector friend who would buy pictures of Charlie from me, and one year she bought one of those of his horn player and gave it to him for a birthday present in uh, 2006 when she went to see him at the Blue Note in New York. So one actually ended up with Charlie, some ended up with Bill, some ended up with Keith. Ronnie got a couple of little, I guess they were three by fives or five by sevens okay. at that time. And well, Mick got a bunch of them, but I'm sure we'll never find them. Well, that's, They're in that's a warehouse somewhere <laughs> well into the past and forgotten about. What you know what I love, though, also, Kurt, was what I love is that you're not just going after, it's not just the Rolling Stones proper. You did go do the New Barbarians, and not a lot of people can say that. I mean, they only did about 20 shows in their history. You saw Mick Taylor doing his shows over the years. You went to see the Winos. You know, you had a great picture of Sarah Dash with Keith on stage, who just passed away here recently in the book. I think it's 130 or 134 page in there. Yeah, you know, and saw Charlie's Quintet and all that so it's it's not just the main mothership that you're after which as you noted from 81 to 89 not a whole lot to shoot there but you uh -oh. would you would continue to, to be part of the family and see all the other great stuff and i have the book the the new barbarians which like outlaws gunslingers and guitars or something like that that came out yeah. a few years back 
your your shots are in that. I have that book. It's a brilliant book. It's great, man. Yeah, that was an interesting little project. Rob Chapman really didn't know much about photography or digitizing stuff. Mm-hmm. He had people do it for him. I'm not even sure that he wrote it, but let's not go there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the fact of the matter is, is if I hadn't supplied a lot of stuff to him and been suggestive about how things could like actually occur, okay, it wouldn't have. When they when he got some new people on the project to do uh, some ghost writing, I guess it was, it worked out that they used a lot of my material. And, well, the interesting thing about that was I ended up with a credit on their uh, record out of that, on the uh, on the album cover for the uh, new CD. The, uh, for the CD that came with the book? The CD that came in the book, I actually had the credit on the, album, on the album cover there, as well as the images in the book. That's awesome. And actually, the credits I've gotten in the books that I've had stuff in are extended to giving them history, photographs, and memorabilia in different instances. Because I collect stuff, too. I bet you have an amazing collection of cool stuff. I would, you know, that we would die to see. Depends on your perspective. <laughs> I've got a couple hundred posters. I might have 50 or 60 t-shirts, 50 odd books, every bit of recording, every bit of official issue, as well as some others, and unofficial, and some of my own recordings and what have. Yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff in a lot of different areas. I mean, there's books, there's records, there's DVD and VHS and boots and all this other stuff. But the Rolling Stones aren't the only ones I've photographed in terms of uh, performers. Right. I've shot about 100 other well-known, nationally and internationally known groups for everybody from uh, Aerosmith to Zappa. I've got shots of uh, Muddy Waters or Bo Diddley or uh, the Beach Boys and Frank Zappa, a whole bunch of people. Now you've got a, your website is great in that it's it's www.chief-moons-gallery.com where you do have some yeah. of the stone stuff up. You've got all your stones dates on there, but you've also got the list of all the other artists that you've shot over the year. You may not necessarily have links to all those, but the list is impressive. So it's not just you just did this for the stones. You're a serial, you know, photographer of these guys. It wasn't just sneaking into stone shows with your equipment. You snuck around a lot. Well, there were a lot of instances where there was no issue of the presence of a camera. I mean, uh, Marty Waters, there was no aggravation at all. I could practically sit on the stage. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I sat at the foot of the stage, nobody bugged me at all. Robbie Shankar, when I went to shoot that, a couple of people in the audience got a little bit upset because they could hear the clicks of the camera. I guess it bugged their appreciation of Indian Raga. But <laughs> Maybe. There have been a lot of times when I've gone with other, you know, where I've been uh, working with bands and they've been an opening act. Mm-hmm. Different people, or there's been no there's been no prohibition. When I shot McCartney in '76, there was no oh you can't bring a camera. Hmm. Not that I recall at any rate. There's not a lot of them. It's like Cal Jam too. Nobody gave a, a hoot if you had a camera. And the further back in time you go, the less likely it is that it was prohibited. In fact, the more likely it was that you had a camera. There was deference. Yeah. yeah, I've never been able to understand why. I mean, I've had some people explain that, oh, the group doesn't want it. Well, you go to a group, you find out they don't mind. Oh, the label, oh, hell, label doesn't want it. Then you find out that the people at the label don't give a hoot. You know, the fans certainly don't give a hoot. This is a funny game that gets played over exclusivity as well. Sure. Okay, so it's, as far as I'm concerned, if you're in a public building and you're paying to be there, it's public domain. Sure. And <laughs> once you shoot it, it's yours. You have the copyright. Once you push that shutter button, that's yours. So unless you're shooting for hire, where's the issue? Not to mention, you can't prevent people from bringing their cell phones to a show. You can't. That might be the only well, way they and, get in, is is now they don't even have and, physical and, tickets. Yeah, in the modern world, that is the case, that everybody's got a phone with them. Say, Jesus, you got people out there shooting full-frame video with their telephones. Right. And right. recording the music as well, and I can't bring a simple camera? Yeah, I mean, some of those computers are I mean, live streaming it. And I have encountered people where they're fairly nasty about it. Okay. <laughs> I shot Frank Zappa. It must have been early in the winter of 77 or late 76. I hear he's prickly. At a place called the Orpheum. Anyway, there was nothing on the ticket that said you could bring it with you. I go and I had, you know, I had a ticket, I had a seat, and I was shooting from my seat. At one point in time, I got up to have a different perspective and moved around in the, in the building somewhere. There was nobody sitting in the seat. I sat, shot a few, and moved on. Anyway, at some point in time, a guy comes up to me, and he says, you can't. You can't stay. You're going. Okay? And it's wintertime in Boston. He takes me out of the building. He didn't even let me get my gear and my coat. Aww. Okay, so I'm out there. 
It's like, okay, how do I get past this problem? Well, anyway, a few minutes later, out comes a, a couple of girls and a guy in a suit. I get brought back in. The guy who had put me out had to escort me before to the stage so I could get some decent shots. And then he had to go, and I got to go back to my seat. So who was it that... that what it was, was, the chicks had got upset that I got tossed out, and they went and they complained to the management. Wow. And that would be the guy in the suit who took me back in. Okay, I had a deal going with the, with the people with the Orpheum. I would always bring them photographs of the last thing I shot, and when I did that, they would give me the, the ticket to the next thing I wanted to as a comp. Gotcha. Okay, so the guy wanted to know where my ticket was, and all I had was some... Scratchy, I had some hand scratchings on an envelope that said it was good. <laughs> the guy didn't realize that it was from the box office people and that I was no problem for him. More interesting time was with the Beach Boys in uh, January of 77. I think it was maybe January 18th or 19th, right? But no, 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 it was the morning of the inauguration because I shot pictures of Carter. That was a zoo, too. Carter on his inaugural walk in 1976. Really? Which would have occurred in January 20th, 77, thereabouts. Okay. Anyway, in the morning I shot Carter. In the evening it was the Beach Boys, and then in the dead of the night it was Greg Allman. Okay, yeah. Greg Allman had a burger hut in D.C. And at first he, he didn't like the idea at all, getting photographed at a burger joint. But within four frames he's smiling, there's no problem. I get an autograph and all that kind of stuff, and it worked out all right. There's a lot of different weird perceptions about photographers. And when that Word paparazzi gets used, everybody hates to know that. Of course. <laughs> well, I think if they can tell that you're a fan and want to present them in a in a cool rock and roll light as a real person, I would think that they would be they would be more apt to do that than, like you said, a paparazzi where you're you're trying to get them doing something like stupid, a gotcha moment, or yeah. embarrassing. Yeah, it's a very rare thing for me to shoot non-stage uh, images of any performer. Anyway, with the Beach Boys, I shot in Boston earlier in 76 and in between that point in time which might have been October or November in Boston I had encountered a collector of Beach Boys stuff in New Jersey a guy who was legally blind he took a magnifying glass to the pictures I brought him he bought him and then he handed me over to somebody that handed me over directly to the Beach Boys okay so I meet Dennis Wilson we talk about okay uh, I want you to be taking my pictures because he loved this one shot I had of him okay Okay. so he tells me meet him at the Capitol Center so I go to the Capitol Center I show up early in the afternoon maybe about sound check time I'm sitting just in the seats everything's empty there's only personnel from the band and from the venue uh, and these two guys come along and they say you can't be here two big guys alright they look like freaking cops or military cops to me so they move me out of the building into the snow and what have you and now I'm thinking okay a band member tells me to show up I show up and somebody else puts me out how do I get past this one well where the man to several hours worth of hanging out in the snow by the ramp where the uh, limos go down into the Capitol Center. I knew that I knew the order of operation on their cars. And when the cars stopped, one of the doors opened up and it was Dennis's car. I hop in, okay? We go down the ramp, the gate, the door goes up, goes through the door, we're in the backstage area of the venue of the Capitol Center. I hop out of the car and the first thing that happens, the same two clowns grab me. Oh. I'm coming out of the band's car and they do this funny riff, okay? So Dennis comes out of the car and he's fucking hands off. Nice. Uh, they didn't work that night. I did. Beautiful. So different things have happened along the way. Yeah, I had one situation in Amsterdam in 98 where a very astute, uh, must have been an MI5 guy or something, <laughs> noticed. He noticed an extra pulsation along the carotid artery. And from that, he realized that I might have had some extra weight on my head. I had a hat. I was wearing a top hat. I had my gear in it. 20 rolls of film, a telephoto, and the body. Okay? Wow. He happened to notice I had some weight on my head. He wants to know what's the hat. I got braced by a circle of about eight of them and was required to take off my hat. And even though I got to go to the show, I didn't get to bring my gear. Huh. So yeah. that is one time where I saw a stuff hell, if you will. <laughs>
So, of all of the all of the tours of the stones that you saw, was there one that was your favorite? Because you're going for different reasons. Like when we go, we're trying to see the band, we're trying to hear the music. You're going to get the best shot. You're not even really watching the show. You're watching the crowd. You're watching the security people, right? Uh, no, basically, by the time I'm in and the camera's out, I'm not watching anything except for a little tiny rectangle. Right. What's in the rectangle? I'm not really thinking about much else. If I pull the camera away, I might only be looking for the next target for it. Right. You know, they move around all the time. I mean, Nick is a, a difficult target. Yeah. Okay, and it does, really does depend on the lighting. He does move around. He does move in patterns and choreograph patterns if you will but none of them stay still there's a lot of you know choreographed movement between and among them as they play and this spontaneous stuff that rises up i do go over the music and the music is what drives it but it's not i don't know how to explain the separation and in other words i'm so far immersed in the music that i'm not hearing it Mm-hmm. I'm not really I'm not able to appreciate it for what it is unless I break away from using the camera I understand and you know well I mean have you ever been I know you've had Mick Jagger throw his throw the water on you before I was looking at pictures uh, on like page 106 107 109 in there look like maybe it was the Steel Wheels tour it looks like Mick is looking right at you have you ever had one of the bands <laughs> say uh, yeah there's a guy right there get him out of See, here I don't know maybe <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yeah, but then again, it can appear that they're looking, that they're looking dead at you and not be actually looking be going on beyond you. Yeah, no. Well, if you had a pretty girl next to you, that's where Bill Wyman was looking. He wasn't looking at you. No offense. <laughs> yeah, there's some of them where I guess they're looking at me, but there's. I mean, it can be pretty noticeable if you're the only one out there with a camera and you're on somebody's shoulders. <laughs> Hard to hide. Yeah. That's what it was like in Basel, Switzerland, for a couple of songs. A guy says. Big, big guy comes along and he says, I'll put you up on my shoulders. You can do better. Okay. So I, uh, did change the vantage point some, and I know that I got a couple of better ones out of it. Were you excited? I know we, we did a whole show on the Steel Wheels record because it was kind of the first one that we got into for the first New Stones record that came out in kind of our lifetime. Were uh-huh. you excited to see them come back in 89? Oh, yeah. I enjoyed the fact that it came back in 89, but I didn't miss the albums that happened between 82 and 89. No one did. I mean, I don't do dirty work and undercover at all. I mean, I dig those records. I, I like all of their records. You know, the thing is, is that if it was possible economically, I would have been in every single one of them. Wow. I would have done nothing but shoot shows at, at a whim, you know, and it would have been well beyond the Rolling Stones. It would have been nuts. Or I would have done things like in 88 when all of them were out individually. Okay, uh, Ronnie was on the Gunslingers tour with Bo Diddley. Mm-hmm. Kelly had Rocket 88. Keith was out there with the Wine House. Yep. And Mick was out there with the Red Devils. And there was a night. Where if you timed it right and the airlines didn't screw you, you could catch three different gigs on three different continents. And they would have all been solo stone shows. If I'd had the bread, I'd done stuff like that. Even as it stands now, I'd still like to be able to go to every single show on a tour. And I haven't been able to do that since uh, Expensive Wino. The only one I missed on them was the one they did uh, in England. At Networks, I guess it was, when they uh, played some kind of a festival there. Other than that, in Ace, as one of was the only one. I, I mean, that was a one-off. Charlie was a one-off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Jackson and I are talking that, you know, with the death of Charlie, maybe the Stones might pause a bit. I doubt it. They, they seem to just kind of soldier on no matter what. But if that were to happen and they had to put the Stones down, that would leave an opportunity open to put the Winos back together. And then Jackson and I... We may not bring our cameras, but we will take off work and just go follow the winos around for a couple of months. <laughs> and with Charlie passing, it certainly does change things. Yeah. Now, I'm not one of those that's going to say, oh, I'm not going. Of course I'll go. That's not a question for me because there have been numerous iterations of the Rolling Stones over time. That's right. When you think about it, actually, this would be about their eighth incarnation. If you take a look at the period of time before Charlie Watts was a member of the band, that'd be one incarnation. Okay, now you got the original six of them, if you will, because initially it was Ian, Ian Stewart, Stewart was the piano well one, right? Keyboard. Mm-hmm. Okay, but when Andrew Oldham came along, he cut Stewart from the lineup. Uh, okay, so that's a second iteration. Okay, then Brian Jones dies, and we get a third one with Mick Taylor. Mick Taylor quits. We get a fourth one with Ronnie Wood. Right. We go down the road a bit, and we end up with Bill Wyman quitting. That's right. So now we've got a fifth one with Daryl Jones. Okay. Now a lot of side people have died. 
as well. Nicky Hopkins. But I think more importantly and more in popular consciousness... Bobby Keys. Uh, Bobby Keys. Yeah. Okay, so there we are at six. So I guess this would be more like the seventh iteration of the Rolling Stones over time. And I don't see him as no longer being the Rolling Stones because, hell, there's still the rest of them. That's right. Well, are you going to hit no filter? Are you going to go... To L.A. or Vegas or Austin uh, this fall to catch him? Vegas is under contemplation, yes. Okay. I mean, it's all it's all patched together. It's a final choice sort of thing, mm-hmm. given the uh, current reality in America. I mean, it's more. I think it's more likely in the event that Allegiant Stadium says, "Look, you want to go to this one? You're vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, don't even think about it." Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, in my mind, that should be the protocol, regardless. You know, because we've had to go through this pandemic thing for an extended period of time because of people's refusals to do a simple thing. Initially, it could have been beaten within 90 days if everybody would have stayed home and masked up if they were out in public. It could have been, the original strain could have been squashed. That didn't happen. Right. And we're seeing a, a repeat of the same craziness now that we have a vaccine. If everybody was vaccinated, there would no longer be a question of pandemic in the United States. But I guess the problem's got to be global for a couple more years at least. So where that's going to end is hard to say. Well, Kurt, tell us where we can find you. Now, tell us about you know your Instagram site, your Twitter, your website. Where can people find you? Okay, well, my website is, is like a primary locus. Mm-hmm. You'll note that on the front page of it, there's links to Twitter. There's links to Instagram. There's links to Facebook. There's links to other social media there. Flickr, Tumblr, those sorts of things, image-based social media. On activity, I've got, I guess, five different pages at Facebook. The book has a Facebook page. The book is available at Amazon. It's available through Ingram. It's available at the uh, Barnes Noble. And the e-book is available through something called Lulu.com. And the picture of the book on the front page brings you to the page-specific thing about the book. At the bottom of that, there's the links to where it can be purchased in a different form. So it exists as an ebook, as a paperback, as a hardback, as a hardback with a dust jacket. Cool. Good. Well, we want our listeners to know exactly where they can go. And yeah, chief-moons-gallery.com is kind of the gateway to, to get to all of that. Yes. Black Kurt shared it with us because it's an amazing book. Thank you. Question for you too: the the going back and forth between color and black and white is that a is was that a conscious thing or was it just what you kind of had with you as far as the film at the time? Well, sometimes it'd be a function of how much film I could have with me or get at the time. I mean, there've been times I've been showing up in the city and I had to sell prints before I bought film. Sure. <laughs> and if it was a Sunday and it was a funny little town, hey, the only thing might be black and white. Okay. Or it might be a, a drugstore and it only had color and I couldn't get black and white. I like to go with a balanced 20 rolls equivalent and shoot black and white color and slide okay i like the i like slides as opposed to color negative but i like to keep a balance as to production values of each different kind and do you shoot uh do you still shoot on film or have you gone all digital now? Well, I've gone to digital simply because of the, uh, well, more extreme measures of patting it down. I watched the powers, it was ridiculous. I had on a T-shirt, mind you, a light little jacket with one tiny little pocket. I had to take off the jacket so they could go through the pocket. They went through my pants pockets to maybe take my hat off. However, they were not astute enough to be totally thorough. Now, the guy in 96 at the Charlie gig he was thorough, but I figured he'd seen some time inside and been frisked a number of times. He's frisking like a cop who frisk it. Well, he missed the point and so did the guy in Paris. In Paris, this little thing disappeared right inside my boot. In okay. the boot. And he missed okay. it by about an inch and a quarter. <laughs> and they were excited. You might have been about Paris, where they had military people with weapons lining the actual way into the place. Yeah, they had just had that discotheque blown up, okay. and they were all kinds of freaked out security-wise. But luckily, you were just there to shoot some film. That's it. Yeah, but I don't know. I guess in some quarters, that's a criminal act. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're good. certainly glad that you did take all these pictures because it is a great chronicle of those times with the band. One of, for for Mac and I, what one of the biggest bands that we got introduced to. And like you said, we could listen to the Stones every single day, all day long, and never get tired because of the catalog that they've got. 
and like you said, they had a couple of different iterations. They sound different in the different eras, but it all it all puts together to be just a great catalog of music. Yes, they certainly have. They are my favorite band as it goes. Uh, they are what I listen to. If I'm going to put it on, that's what it's going to be. Do you have a favorite uh, Stones album? That's another difficult area. I like them all. <laughs> I, mean, I think maybe there's one tune that I can discount. One out of their entire catalog that, eh, well, maybe they shouldn't have done that one. But okay. other than that, no, I, I like all this stuff. And I've been listening to it, oh, 58 years. Just about. This is our... September of 21, and I imagine it was by fall of 63 that I caught into them and just, it, they stuck. I mean, they had good tunes, they were really happening. If you rolled the dial on your radio right, I started listening to our transistor radio. You know, sometimes on Facebook you'll see this question where they'll show you a picture of a CD and a tape and an album and ask you what the medium was when you started listening to music. Well, I always answer transistor radio. <laughs> I was in eight. My sister had the record player. She's playing Bob Dylan and Elvis Presley. Rolling Stones? No, no, she wouldn't do that. Okay, Rolling Stones in the house? No, Grandpa listened to country music and Grandma listened to classical music. Yeah, I liked high harpsichord music by Kenny O'Break, bullshit <laughs> like Jack Benny. Okay, I used to ha I used to suffer through Barnes Well. Oh no. goodness. Okay. Well, did you ever get to like Ed Sullivan or any of the TV shows in New York oh, back in the day? No. No, no. Uh, I was fortunate even to see them there in 66. It was only because I'd been going to one store getting their singles okay. for a couple of years that the guy behind said, do you know that they're playing? I said, where do you get the tickets? And it's also the only gig I've ever attended that was absolute stealthy done with respect to anybody that knew me. Where I grew up in the Bronx, it was like doo-wop and pericomo. Right. Okay. You didn't bring that Rolling Stone stuff around, okay? <laughs> you just didn't do it. So even among my age peers, I see, I went to a school, high school Taft in the Bronx. About 1,500 people attended, okay? Okay. Maybe 15 of us liked the Rolling Stones. Wow. And we discovered that mostly in the summertime that this was a fact. Other than that, they were not popular. It's been amazing. We really appreciate you being on here and, and telling us a little bit about your adventures in life and your adventures with the Stones and all the countries you've been to and things like that. We've, we've We've only got a, a couple minutes left. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, I think that it's been an interesting time. Uh, it's not at all at an end yet. I mean, they are going to carry on. Let's look at it this way. They've already booked Europe next year. Right, 2022. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, maybe maybe too many people aren't aware of that at this stage of the game, but there is an awareness of that at a particular point online. And the reason why they're doing this is because they wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't do this American bit now. And, and finish in what other they words, had to. Yeah, in other words, Nobody would touch them insurance-wise at that point in time if this obligation wasn't met. I mean, imagine the conundrum. They'd already sold 15 stadiums worth of tickets. Right. And then the pandemic hit. And then it looked like things were going to be in the clear and everybody would be able to function normally. So they went ahead and patched this one in. And then, boom, hey, the Delta thing came along. And then, shit, Charlie is sick and then. Holy shit, Charlie is dead. Right. And they're, you know, they're stuck with this obligation and the expectation of people, as well as Mr. Watts' indication that he didn't want to be the one to put an end to it. Of course not. Where it ends is a really difficult, hard thing to come up with. I don't think they even know yet. So I would expect I'd maybe go to a date or two this year and then I'd be aiming at, well, at the very least, I'd be aiming at the last one across the pond next year. Cool. We well, hopefully you will be there and uh, continue to chronicle this. Uh, this adventure with the Rolling Stones. I mean, Thank you. Like I appreciate this. Well, no, you've been great. Your stories are great. Your energy's great. And obviously, you know, uh, hopefully if you do a volume two, you got to let us know. Or anything else, any projects you got going on, let us know. You take too. care. Thank you. Right, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that wraps up our chat with Kurt Angelitis, a longtime photographer and Rolling Stones fan who has captured thousands and thousands of images of the band over the years, whether it's the main Rolling Stones band or some of their spin-off side bands, and has created a great book, Go For Broke, Volume 1, which captures them from the mid-1970s all the way to 2019. Kind of an amazing story, an amazing life he's led over the years, and not just capturing the Stones, but capturing all sorts of bands in all sorts of venues all over the world. 
I just wish I had seen as many shows as he did. I would have liked to have just gone to the shows, watched the shows, listened to the shows for what they were. It seems like the unfortunate thing about Kurt is that he never really got to sit down and enjoy the shows or stand up and sing along. He was too busy looking for an angle, looking for his next spot to shoot, making sure he wasn't going to irritate the security guards or draw too much attention to himself. But at the end of the day, he's led an extraordinary life. He's been to a lot more Stone shows and more concerts than I'll ever have the chance to go to. And he's chronicled it all. And so you can check that out on Amazon. And I definitely encourage you to do so. It's an amazing book, and you can get it on hardcover. You can get it in paperback. You can get it digitally if you wish. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to our interview with photographer and Big Stones fan, Kurt Angelitis. And know that next week, we're going to have a new review for you, an album that I know everybody knows as we're coming up on its 50th anniversary. As we lead up to our 50th show, we're going to do a few 50th anniversary albums. No giveaways right now, folks. You're just going to have to tune in. So as usual, we want to know, Stones fans, there's a lot out of you. Any of the stats, do we get them right? Do we get them wrong? Do we miss the point? Hey, please let us know. Tweet us, DM us, at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. And check out all past episodes at www.uglyamericanwerewolf.libsyn.com. Until then, rock and rollers all over the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.